Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. For the following episode, please be advised that the conversation includes mention of gun violence and suicide. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm joined today by pastor, author, and theologian Nadia Boltz-Weber. Nadia is an ordained Lutheran pastor and the founder of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. She's the creator and host of the Confessional Podcast, which invites guests to share stories about times that they were at their worst and is executive produced by our friends over at The Moth. Nadia is the author of three New York Times bestselling memoirs, Pastrix, which was re-released in May of 2021, Accidental Saints, and her 2019 release, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. In 2021, she launched The Chapel, a year-long project that serves as a pop-up chapel for in-depth conversation, daily prayer, and community. Nadia is considered a leader in the emerging church movement, redefining the church and how the tradition is embodied today. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the Meta Hour, Nadia. Oh my gosh, it's really fun to be here. It's fun because I've listened to you uh, in my meditations. I'm sure people say that. And now you're like talking, I feel like you're talking directly to me when I listen to your meditations. And now you're actually, I think I like manifested, now she's actually talking to me. <laughs> Someday, who knows, maybe we'll be together in the same room. It's like, there's a visual, you know, it's like, oh, great. Uh, where are you beaming in from for this recording? my closet <laughs> oh you, that's the way to do it I never did that I had yeah. I did an audio version of of my most recent book and everyone wanted me to empty out a closet and I thought you just haven't seen my closet yeah. you know like yeah yeah I live in Denver and I live in an apartment so there's not a lot of space well how great well you sound great so it's working yeah good I'm glad and we have a, a really good mutual friend uh, in common, that's Catherine Burns, who's the artistic director at The Moth, and that's how I first encountered your work. So thanks to Catherine for connecting us, and you have quite an extraordinary life story. You grew up in a fundamentalist Christian family. Your parents were part of the Church of Christ, but you left as a young adult and went on to eventually study religion on your own terms and become an ordained Lutheran pastor. And can you give us a flavor of what that journey was for you? Well, I it was unforeseen, I mm -hmm. think. I mean, it was not what I planned or expected of my life. It just kind of unfolded really as a call. And for I mm -hmm. mean, for me, I didn't have this like pious... I just want to be a pastor and serve the church. I, I had like none of that. It, it was just, I happened to stumble into Lutheranism and I really loved it as a theological system because it's really based in paradox and mystery, not like certainty and dualism. And so 
I was really drawn to it. And as somebody in recovery, it it gave me language for what I'd already experienced to be true. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, it wasn't mm-hmm. like I adopted some external ideology as my own. I, I found one that was such a beautiful articulation of my own experience, mm-hmm. especially as somebody who'd gotten sober. And so I had started going to church and I ended up really loving the liturgy and sacraments and these more ancient traditions. I loved that they seemed to kind of have their own integrity. They didn't demand my integrity in order to be efficacious. I got to just participate. And um, when I was in that period, uh, a friend of mine named PJ, who was also, uh, who went to the same AA meeting I did, we were all kind of trying to get sober, stumbling through life, doing stand-up comedy because none of us could afford therapy. So it just mm-hmm. was like cheaper and you got $30. And um, and PJ was just hilarious and also an alcoholic, but but struggled with some additional mental health issues. And and sadly, um, we watched him sort of his spirit and mind disintegrate a Mm -hmm, bit. And and mm -hmm. we lost him to suicide. And when PJ died, uh, all our friends just looked at me and they're like, well, you can do the funeral, right? And I'm like, what? And they're like, well, Mm. I literally was just the only religious person in my friend group. Mm. And so they just assumed I could do it. And I said, okay. And it was at the Comedy Works in downtown Denver, and it was just yeah. packed with like comics and and uh, academics and recovering alcoholics and queers. And I just looked out and and I thought these people don't have a pastor, and they need a pastor. And then I was like, oh shit, I think maybe that's me. <laughs> I don't know. It was just it was just. <laughs> <laughs> it was weird and sudden and like, uh-oh. And so I just felt kind of called to be a pastor to my people uh, because people need pastors who aren't like actual just church people too. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that what you described is hearing the articulation of what you deeply knew from within is is just about the most beautiful expression of insider wisdom. You know, that it's not like this foreign commodity that we're asked to now hold, you know, but it's That's right. yeah. it's just this affirmation of like, yeah, I knew that. Oh, I knew that, you know, right. like, or I didn't yeah. know the words for that. That's right. And like, just the simple thing of, I have it tattooed on my wrist in Latin, simul justus et peccator, which Martin Luther wrote, which is simultaneously sinner and saint. Like, we're mm. all 100% of both all the time. Mm-hmm. And when they said that, I was like, Oh my gosh, that explains a lot. Mm-hmm. I noticed too in the name of the church, the house for yeah. all sinners and saints, that sinners come first. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I thought, oh, my mind yeah. paused a moment, you know, before I read that. But that's not like two distinct categories of people. Yeah. That's us. That's everyone. That's every person. Yeah. It's also interesting to me because within the um, Buddhist world, some of, uh, you know, for very classical or traditional Buddhists, especially Asian Buddhists, um, some of that feeling comes from a belief in rebirth where mm-hmm. in the course of many, many lifetimes, we've all done everything. Huh. You know, we've helped, we've helped one another, mm-hmm. we've saved one another, we've hurt one another. Yeah. 
And so within that cosmology, the single most illogical feeling to ever have is self-righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's eliminated. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel the same way about the Psalms. I think, I think there's like almost every human experience expressed in the Psalms. And sometimes people get a little edgy. They're like, Oh, there's, it's so violent. And you're asking Mm -hmm. like God to smite your enemies. I'm like, you've never felt that. I've totally (laughs) felt that, you know? I mean, you're not, I, I might felt not that feel on it. Thursday. Exactly. <laughs> so it, it, one of the things I love about the Psalms is that it, it has this just incredible breadth of human experience and failing and bliss. It's all there. Now, there's a very delicate dance, I would think, you know, certainly in my experience between recognizing that and also... Um, recognizing that actions have consequences, you know, yeah. and that we have to, to the best of our ability, make different choices sometimes. Right. I mean, that's one of the things I think I'm thinking about a lot right now as I'm, I'm writing a book about, I'm writing a book about forgiveness right now, but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. like from the standpoint of an asshole, not an expert, just to be, just to be clear. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, but thinking about how, I think justice and forgiveness are two separate orders of reality, maybe. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. It's it's something I'm struggling with right now. Well, I'm sure we're going to get there in the course of this conversation because it's, <laughs> it's very important. So one of the things I was most curious to talk to you about was shame because I'm writing a book too. And oh, good, yeah. And one of the um, chapters seems to be about, as it's still emerging, you know, um, some of the things that society urges upon us as the most uh, fulfilling or the most expansive or the most important are some of the the things that hurt us the most, actually. Like what? Like shame, for example. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, that, that would be the perfect example of, uh, I mean, there's something that we need, and and one psychologist was uh, trying to help me draw a distinction between what he called um, toxic shame and conscience. You know, yeah, yeah. But in well, terms of that toxic shame, it's so urged upon us, and mm-hmm. and yet, you know, the consequences are are so terrible, and and uh, it's not onward leading. Well, I actually, I think one of the consequences of shame that we don't really talk about is, um, I think shame actually keeps us from being able to speak the truth about our failings. Mm-hmm. Like it actually keeps us from the truth of the ways maybe we haven't done something we should, or we've done something we shouldn't have that, that, um, you know, in, in, in my sort of mythic creation narrative in the Garden of Eden, um, I've, I've always been curious what it was, what it would have been like if when Adam and Eve, you know, ate the forbidden fruit and they were hiding from God. The interesting thing about that story to me is that uh, they covered themselves because they were ashamed of their nakedness, but that was only after they listened to a voice that was not a divine voice tell them who they are. Mm-hmm. It was the snake you know, and so mm-hmm. God's like, hey, where are you guys hanging out? And they're like, oh, we're scared of you and we're naked. And God's like, hold on, who told you you were naked? 
Mm. I'm like, my money's on the snake. Mm -hmm. But uh, so they, which to me says that like shame has an origin and it isn't in the divine. Uh, Shame often originates in voices that claim they are speaking for God and they're not. Or Mm -hmm. voices that are claiming an authority that they don't truly have. And so... Uh, I've always wondered how the story would have ended differently if Adam and Eve just said, oh, yeah, well, we did something you told us not to, and now we kind of get it, and, you know, are we good? And God's like, yeah, we're good, right? But they couldn't do that. They couldn't just tell the truth. They had to point, they had to blame other people, they had to lie, they had to uh, hide all of the things we do now as a result of shame. I mean, shame makes us place blame on everything externally. It makes us not admit the truth. So I think that if freedom comes from some kind of truth about ourselves, shame will always obscure it, both the good and the bad, both. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I know uh, shame is also the topic of your most recent book, Shameless, a Sexual Reformation. And you describe the book as an overhaul of our harmful and antiquated ideas about sex, gender, and our bodies. So I'm curious about what spurred the book for you. <laughs> uh, like, really? You want me to tell you? Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I will. I totally will. But, you know, hold on. Um, so, <laughs> um, so I was married to, a, like, a really, a truly good man. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a very difficult, lonely marriage that, had really no kind of intimacy to it. We were roommates co-parented and we had a very friendly divorce without lawyers or anything. And we're very respectful and kind with each other now. Um, But it was very lonely. And that part of me, the erotic part of me was just sort of necessarily shut down for a long time. Mm -hmm. And when we got divorced and I got together with Eric, who is was my boyfriend in 93, 94, and we're still together, deeply, passionately in love <laughs> with each other. But when we first got together and we did have that erotic connection with each other, it it it, it felt like an exfoliation of my whole spirit. Honestly, mm-hmm, I was mm-hmm. like oh my gosh, this everything felt softer. I um I just thought this is good for mm-hmm, me. Mm-hmm. And but a couple weeks after we got together, I had to go on tour to support the UK and the German edition of Accidental Saints. And so I was on the road for three weeks and I had all this stuff swirling in my mind. And I realized, even though I'm ordained in a very liberal denomination, I had to sign a document when I was ordained that said I would be faithful in marriage or celibate in singleness. Mm. And I was married at the time, and I didn't even think about it. And suddenly, I'm walking around London going, why the hell did the church make me sign a document saying I wouldn't do this mm-hmm. when this is clearly good? And I hopped. I was like, how is it better for my congregation if I'm not getting laid? Like, that just made no sense to me. And so, I I text Eric, and I was like, can you hop on on Skype right now? And he said, "Well, it's five in the morning, but okay." So, we're, <laughs> so I'm love. walking. I'm, I'm walking in London, going, and he's a heathen, right? This is he's not Christian, and um, he's very faithful heathen. And and I said, "Why do you think for so long that the church has tried to control sex?" And without skipping a beat, he just said, 
oh, I always assumed that the church saw sex as its competition. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm writing a book. Like, literally, that was the moment. Because I knew he was right, and yeah, I wanted yeah. to figure out why he was right and how he was right. That's really fantastic. Now, uh, that is intricate, and I could spend a long time just thinking about that, but I'll go on yeah. for a moment. Totally. Um, you know, because that that relationship um, with honesty is also uh, really important. I was talking to somebody about vulnerability the other day, and they asked me how I would define it. And I said, I have a kind of, I think, unusual definition of vulnerability. I, I talk about it as honesty, mm. you know, because mm. it's it's so much easier, for example, in a communication with somebody to be accusatory, like, mm. you, you know, you're never there for me, or you're never there for anybody, or you're mm-hmm. creepy or whatever. And, and it's much more difficult to say, I was hoping, I was yearning for right. uh, some real connection. And when you um, blew me off or whatever, you know, that was yeah. hurtful to me. That yeah. is so vulnerable and yet it it's is. so truthful. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, Annie Lamott in her latest yeah. book, um, do you know Annie? Have you? I do. I do. Yeah, I do too. She's lovely. Um, but in her latest book, she talks about how she has a friend who says that when you first meet him, you're really meeting his bodyguard. Mm-hmm. It's true. And I'm like, oh, man, I had such a good bodyguard. Like, I, I'm so grateful to her. Like she, she did a lot for me over the years, but she was pretty much off duty during COVID, you know, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I was just in my apartment, but like being on the road and being somebody who does tell pretty honest stories about myself, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in 2019, I was on 90 airplanes in seven countries. Like my bodyguard did a lot of work. Um, And yet, having her off duty for a year and a half, when I started being around people more, I was like, I'm not the same person I was. None of us are the same Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. we were before this. And like, I think she might have just earned a lot of PTO. Mm -hmm. So she's just going to continue, hopefully, to be off duty. (laughs) So, you know, continuing on with, uh, although, as you say that, I thought, I think I was on that many planes, too. It was really bad. Yeah, I know. Um, but, and, and how did it, Sharon, how did it feel when, like, because, you know, that was 2019, and then the 2020, I was yeah. in my apartment. Yeah, yeah. And how did that feel for you to have that change? Uh, in, I mean, in so many ways, it felt really good, you know, in other ways, it was, it was, uh it was very difficult. It was um, a big surprise. You know, I, I came yeah. back um, to Barry, Massachusetts, which is where I'm speaking to you from right now. Uh, even though I had a, a rental apartment in New York City, um, I had been in California all of February of 2020 and then got back to New York and then I just felt very kind of uneasy there. And I, I thought, mm-hmm. I'll go up to Barry where I have a home and a retreat center, which was still yeah. open at the time. And once again, it just opened the other day, um, it reopened. But uh, wow. 
you know, I, I thought I'll go up there for a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and ride this out, you know, <laughs> until it's done. So came up yeah. here with my snow boots and I was here for almost a year and a half. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and I have, you know, the backgrounds of being on retreat and, you know, uh, living in solitude, basically, you know, I had a very small group of people that I ever saw and, um, you know, so there was a part of it that felt natural and there's a part of it that was incredibly difficult, mostly because I was on Zoom, you know, so many hours and I felt really connected to people and yet couldn't totally be there with them and uh mm-hmm. just like reading those chats you know like it was yeah it was something and and being very connected to new york which was mm-hmm. so bad and yeah um you know it's been a lot and, and now of course it is it is like the kind of the reemergence, which has its own oddity yeah um and although i have not been on an airplane and i don't even know when oh. i would be again um but it's, you know, allowed me to work on this book and the first time yeah. ever without also traveling. Yeah. Which is quite interesting. And yeah. you know, I feel sort of more one pointed than uh mm. than before. So yeah. I I did get really fascinated by um this idea of shame and kind of the importance of of conscience and that just that sensitivity you know, to um, love oneself enough or have enough compassion for oneself to not want to drink or or right. not tell lies, you know, and just not be in that yeah. way. Even if the lies, um, I tell a story in a previous book about somebody offered an apartment in New York City, which is a very complicated real estate story, <laughs> very familiar to anyone who's ever rented an apartment in, in New York. Um where it was like an illegal sublet and yeah. it was perfect in terms of location and rent and all that. But this person telling me the story said, I knew I could not walk into that lobby every day knowing I had a secret. Yeah, for sure. Oh my you know, and, and so there's something about that that is so supportive. And then there's something about what I'm calling shame, I guess what my friend would have called toxic shame, which is so uh, debilitating you know, and it's so devastating. And, and uh, I find myself just really interested in, in trying to draw that distinction. Well, I, I think, yeah, shame can be debilitating. I think it can also be incredibly motivating. Like it can be an engine that drives mm-hmm. a lot of things we do, like because I have to either prove that voice right or I have to prove that voice wrong. And um, I'm like, if... If we could capture, I mean, shame as an energy source, it could replace fossil fuels. Like, I think really <laughs> it's very powerful. And so uh, we we can spend so much energy in response to it one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Another distinction that um, the psychologist friend was trying to make for me was, I mean, he used the words very differently than I would have used it, them from the Buddhist psychology where he said, Shame is is feeling, um, well, guilt is feeling that I've done something wrong and shame is feeling I am wrong. Yeah. You know, so there was a very particular use of the words. And, you know, uh, in the Buddhist psychology, it's a little different. It would be more like 
regret or remorse is wholesome and helpful, you know, because as the Buddha said very beautifully, if you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And so that recollection brings up that lack of love for ourselves and and all the, the things we do. And uh, guilt is considered more that obsessive um, being stuck. You know, I am bad and I, I am terrible and I did all all these other things. So I'm also just trying to make my way through all the language. Well, I, I've been thinking about like, what is it, what does it mean to forgive ourselves? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's in my work on this book. That's what I'm trying to puzzle through because I realize, like the people, if I think about the people in my life that I am not in a place of forgiveness toward mm -hmm. uh, part of what that looks like is that I, um, I only see them as the thing they did that hurt me. Mm -hmm. Like it, it, it can feel very difficult to recall the beautiful parts of our friendship or the times when we were good to each other or the love or the laughter we had. Uh, recalling those good things feels like a betrayal of the part of me that they hurt, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, so I can only, to maintain that place of unforgiveness, I can only afford to see them as just the thing they did that hurt me. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, with when it comes to forgiving ourselves, if it's a little bit the same, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. it, if I can't forgive myself for mistakes I've made or things I've done or said or not done or said, uh, I'm only seeing myself as that. Mm -hmm. I cannot let competing information that might be positive about who I am enter. And it's almost like feeling bad is close enough to being good mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm you know, that, that we do that. Like we, we can't let go of the feeling bad because it's kind of close to being good. <sighs> That's really fascinating. I mean, I really bow to you for taking on the topic because it's a difficult, difficult word. And one of my friends, my colleague, Sylvia Borstein once said, uh, forgiveness is not amnesia. Yeah. You know, which is the way most people take it. And I've also seen, um, several times where somebody chooses love or chooses to move on, uh, but they don't like calling it forgiveness, you know? Interesting. Uh, I taught once in Israel, um, and there was somebody in the retreat who clearly was in a lot of physical discomfort, kind of wiggling and moving all the time and uh, seemed to be in a lot of pain. And then the friend I was teaching with, gave a talk on forgiveness, which he did not like. So he went up to complain to me and, and he said, <laughs> uh, you know, um, I was in a terrorist attack and I have all this shrapnel in my body and I'm always in pain. And he said, I will never forgive. Um, but what I've learned is essential is to learn to stop hating. Yeah, and I thought I'd take that, you know. Yeah, like, yeah for sure. It's pretty good. Sure. And I, I remember in the Holocaust Museum in uh, Washington D.C., walking, you know, through it, and the very last exhibit was like, uh, like video testimony of people who'd uh, been in the Holocaust, usually as children. And um, this one woman told her story, you know, and the loss of all her her people, and. Um, and she said, uh, I've brought up my own children to love and not to hate, but I'll never forgive. 
Hmm. And that's the last thing you hear when you walk wow. out the door. And I thought, wow. wow, that's also pretty good to bring up your children to love and not to hate. Yeah. In that that's circumstance. A, I, I feel like... Um, it's because if saying I forgive this comes perilously close to saying that what happened was okay. Yeah. yeah. And if we know with everything in our being it was not okay, then of course we won't do that. But but I want I mean, I'm in I'm in all of it, no matter what my pursuit is spiritually, I'm in it for one thing, which is freedom. Mm-hmm. I want I want to be free from my own bullshit. I want to be free from shame. I want to be free from lies. You know, I just want freedom. And so when I, when I don't forgive someone, I I am choosing to still be connected to them. I mean, it can feel like that I, I can absorb their toxic stuff through some kind of thing that is a chain between us and so for me forgiveness isn't saying what you did was okay it's saying what you did is so not okay i refuse to be connected to it anymore Mm -hmm. so it's like bolt cutters saying i like the i'm choosing my freedom from your stuff i don't because if i don't do it it can it can enter and in and metastasize in me Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a friend of mine, I think it's an AA saying, um, after a, a kind of um, obsessive bout of thinking about someone else's um, issues and the grievance and the behavior, said, um, I let him live rent-free in my brain for too long. Yeah, totally. It's I know. Jeez. No kidding. And at the same time, I think it is important to do our own work. Sometimes my insistence that the other person is 100% at fault and my unwillingness to let that go and the passion I have about that and the story I tell about that is very much fueled by the fact that actually 90% was them and 10% was me. And it's Mm -hmm. the shame about my 10% that actually drives the passion about insisting they were 100% at fault. And, um, you know, we don't want to like blame the victim and stuff, but there's a line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that's just the it's the one of the worst things I've ever read. It, it says, if we look back far enough, we will find that at some point in the past, we made a decision based on self that put us in a position to be harmed. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you will never be an Instagram influencer with those kind of messages. <laughs> never. <laughs> I was just about to give a plug for AA in that regard. Um, I I read the big book a million years ago. I can't remember what was in it, but I did notice that um, in uh, different organizations that I've been involved in, when uh, there's been a lot of conflict and difficulty and um, struggle in some way, that the people I've admired the most have been the people who are in some 12-step program yeah, because they seem to find this interesting place of taking responsibility for what might be their part in the dynamic without like being crushed by guilt or shame, you know, like yeah, it's all my yeah, fault and it's right. 
you know, That's and I right. thought, look at that. That is a talent, actually. Yeah, yeah. No, it's a, it's an extraordinary. I mean, when I was in my parish uh, and people wanted to meet me for pastoral care, a lot of times they they were telling me a very rehearsed story. Mm-hmm. And I would listen and I would try and listen deeply, but only for an, a certain amount of time. And then I would say, like, I'm so sorry, I can hear the hurt that this caused and all of this. And I I have good news and bad news. The good news is like, you can, I really believe you can be free from the what you're feeling right now. The bad news is that you're going to have to look at what your part was in it. Like, because we're telling a well-rehearsed story about what, about somebody else's blame and fault. Mm-hmm. It, I, I'm like, look, it feels good for a minute, but like. Only in the way that peeing your pants feels warm for a minute, you know, like it's not, <laughs> that's, it's not like lasting, it's not a lasting thing, right? So um, I understand the sort of the little brain chemistry hit you get off of that, but it will never make you free because mm-hmm. you're going to have, even if only 10% is your fault or mm-hmm. your part, until you deal with that, you will have no free. There's no freedom to be found for any of us in dwelling in what other people have done wrong. Mm-hmm. None. It might feel good. It might be good for clarity. It might be good for recognizing a pattern that we're drawn to people who behave a certain way that hurts us. That's useful. But freedom, it, it doesn't come from that. Well, the other place that you tackle shame, uh, and I assume forgiveness, is on your podcast, The Confessional, which you describe as a car wash for people's shame and secrets. So what are you learning there? <laughs> um, I'm learning it's uh, nearly impossible to book guests for it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's why I haven't done a fourth season. <laughs> and the reason is, like, people, again, people have very well-rehearsed stories about being victims of other people's misbehavior Mm -hmm. and like i i it was so hard to book that i i even went on my twitter like a cattle call like are you a fan of the confessional do you have a confession you think you'd be a good guest you know email that you know my producer and we got 30 self-pitying emails Mm. like not one where people in any way could sort of talk about their own complicity in something or that they did something that hurt others. And I, I was kind of looking, I was just taking a wide view of how often that was happening. And I thought, the math is not working here. If if we only have people who have stories about how other people have harmed them, and nobody has stories about how they've harmed other people, <laughs> mathematically, I'm like, who are the three people hurting all the millions, you know? <laughs> so it... And again, I think shame keeps us from admitting this mm-hmm. stuff, you know? It's kind of like, I don't know, like I, I'm pretty confident in my own intellect. And because of that, like if someone uses a word I don't know, I just stop them immediately. And I'm like, what's that word mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know why? I'm not insecure about my intellect. Mm-hmm. So I think there's something similar. It's only people who are slightly insecure about their intellect that pretend to know words they don't know. And I think the same could be said about our our faults and our mistakes. I I don't mind admitting horrible things about myself and telling stories about when I behave badly. My self-esteem is intact. Um, 
And so it doesn't feel sort of threatening to admit the truth in that way. So anyway, so when it comes to shame, I guess with my guess, there are so many, the thing I learned is I do think that there are a lot of people who are carrying around burdens that maybe they don't need to any longer, like mm-hmm. the weight of things they said or didn't say or did mm-hmm. or didn't do mm-hmm. from their past that they could have laid down a long time ago. But again, like people don't don't have priests anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like I get we live in an increasingly secular age. I'm a fan of the Enlightenment. I, I'm suspicious of institutionalized religion. I get all of that. And yet at the same time, human beings have always been religious like human beings fashion religion in endless variety across time culture place like there are certain needs within the human that have always been met through what we use the category of religion to speak of these things and so i don't know that the enlightenment removed the human needs that were met by having things like priests so um it's one of the things I try to offer as much as I can. Like, I don't care if people intellectually assent to the same theological propositions I do. Mm-hmm. They still might need a pastor. You know, I mean, I I did a conversation on stage with Lance Armstrong at the Nantucket Project, the Some Thought Leaders Gathering. And I'm like, he might be an atheist, but that guy needs a pastor, man. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just so clear. I had so much compassion for the pain he felt, you know. So um, my my friend Curlin, who's an Episcopal priest, she, um, she describes what I do as basically Nadia is sneaking into the cathedral, looking around for the most beautiful, valuable things in there, hauling them into the front yard and slapping a free sign on them. It's <laughs> great. You know, so, I feel like I've also seen um, a dynamic that may be the opposite of what you're describing. I'm not sure where people seem consumed with um, some act that, you know, as they finally confess, I think that's not so bad, you know. Oh, girl, I, I took people's <laughs> private confessions in my in my congregation. Like, people would avail themselves of private confession and absolution, and— Honestly, it, it was so much more boring than you would think. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'd be like, is that it? You're done? Like, nothing personal, but I'm super unimpressed by your sin. You know, and sometimes they're weeping and I think, oh, please don't. You know, I mean, I don't say precisely that. I try to be more skillful than that. But, yeah. you know, it, it's just like, wow, that's a heap of something that we're piling on ourselves, you know. How do we help free each other? I mean, I think... That's a compassionate question, isn't it? I mean, yeah. how do we, if we are carrying around these stories that we really could, that we're so tethered to and don't need to be anymore, there is enough grace in the world. There's enough mercy. The divine, whatever, you know, image or language um, or symbol people have to speak of the divine, our divine source is grace. Mm-hmm. and love and compassion and so when we don't have enough there still is enough to draw upon and hopefully our prayer practices our spiritual practices help connect us to mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. to our source you know and so how do we free each other from these burdens 
Well, that's partly, I'm sure, what happens when you elicit someone's story and you don't look repulsed, you know, in oh, response. No, it's like you are never. the presence right there in that moment. Of- yeah, never. No, I have so much compassion for it. Yeah. I, I truly do because, I mean, it. these are the things people are confessing to me are things like if if that is the only fact you knew about them and you learned about it in 160 characters on Twitter, you'd be like, take them out like trash, mm-hmm. cancel them. Mm-hmm. And yet... To let a story like that breathe, to, to then ask them things like, um, what story were you telling yourself at the time that led you to think it was okay to take that action mm-hmm. that now you know is not true? Mm-hmm. Or did you ever have any men in your life who modeled better behavior than that up until that point? You know, like mm-hmm. to, to dig in and ask compassionate, curious questions and let the story breathe. Mm-hmm is so different. And then at the end, I would listen in a contemplative way. I would listen to the recording of my conversation with them, honestly, six or seven times. And then I would write a blessing for them that Mm. I would record at the end. Um, And I have to say, each of my guests um, contacted me and said that they just wept when they Mm. heard it. Like, that's another thing. If we don't have priests, right, (laughs) Where do we go to get a blessing? Mm-hmm. I mean, have we substituted like Instagram likes? I don't, I don't know that that's the same. Yeah, yeah. No, because the the pain is so obviously <laughs> rampant, and sometimes, um, you know, I think about what people feel when they don't get enough likes, or they don't get you know the yes. as many likes as somebody else, or right. um, when they. Um, you know, don't meet some impossible standard of, of perfectionism or right. um, whatever it might be, you know, and the um, the kind of crushing burden of mm-hmm. that. And just to hear, or not even to hear, it doesn't even have to be verbal, just to see somebody uh, not run away, you know, in hearing that story and, and mm-hmm. be completely present and caring. Yeah. Um, and I love what you just described about asking those those questions because mm-hmm. even just to step away from that behavior in one's own mind a little bit and look at it and think, you know, well, that came from pain. Look at that. Or exactly, that's even, exactly right. And yeah. also, how are you a different person now? Mm-hmm. Like, can we allow for that? It, the 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 performative cruelty that happens in social media, digging up something that you find that somebody said or did mm-hmm. 10 or 15 years ago and then calling them to account and then having this standard that there's no way for them to apologize in a perfect way for that. There's no way for them to now prove that they've changed from who they were 15 years ago. I mean, it's, it's, it's so cruel. And if, if we are people who are on some kind of spiritual path, do we not believe in human transformation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's definitely a difficult time in those realms because um, I, I've asked somebody that you know once who was talking about a friend of his and uh, the most dismissive kind of terms and admitted that the person was now a different person and right. and yet you know what he had done was so difficult for this person to to contemplate. So I said, when you think about 
um, maybe this goes back to an earlier point of yours, where I said, when you think about somebody going to prison, do you think about punishment or do you think about rehabilitation? Hmm. And it was clear he thinks about punishment. And I, I yeah. felt like, oh, well, he probably thinks that way about himself, you know? Yeah. In the end, right. you know, that's that, right. Um, going back to what you said about the difference between justice and compassion. Right. There's a beautiful verse, I think it's in Isaiah, where it says, God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Mm. I love that. It's beautiful. Because part of us wants people to pay, you know? I mean, yeah. I, I, I'm struggling right now. My, uh, my 23-year-old nephew um, was shot and killed two months ago. Mm, I'm so sorry. And uh, he had a mental break and he, 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 broke out of this detox he was in mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. banging on a door of a house thinking it was a mm. family home mm. in his sort of in his mind it was a family home and he needed help and he got in and the um, the homeowner shot and killed him mm -hmm. and um i just got back from walking the camino de santiago i, mm -hmm. I got a week ago today, I, I walked into Santiago having walked and prayed for 478 miles of, mm -hmm. and um, partly to kind of grieve my nephew's death. And and I realized I told maybe five people during the journey the story, and none mm -hmm. of them were for the States. And every single one was like, how long will the person be in prison? And I'm like, oh, no, sorry. It's mm -hmm. totally legal here. Mm -hmm. He's considered a hero. To some people, mm -hmm. probably, mm -hmm. you know, for defending himself and uh, from a kid who just needed help. But um, I, I realized, thinking about it more, I don't wish for that person to be punished. Mm -hmm. I don't. I don't mm -hmm. think that his suffering would it would in any way reduce my suffering. And also, I don't know what that person's suffering is. I cannot imagine, no matter yeah, what your yeah. opinions are about firearms and the stand your ground law, I can't imagine that there is not some kind of suffering that that person is going through. Mm -hmm. And increasing that is not going to decrease mine. Will yeah. I ever forgive our culture? I don't know. I don't know. But that's who I blame. Yeah, well, I mean, clearly, you know, uh, I mean, that's sort of where my mind went, like, oh, you know, God, that is like an incredibly painful thing to have done, let alone, you know, caused. Right. But, um, like, too many guns, and where do we feel safe? And Yeah, I know. Um, it's truly and terrible. It, there was, it was, there was something affirming for me about all these people from other countries, assuming it was a crime mm -hmm. and being shocked when I told him it wasn't that it was a comfort to me for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, but um, there's also, um, I love the hidden brain podcast. I'm, I'm kind of obsessed with social psychology and Shankar Vedantam is so good. And um, there was a episode I've listened to twice on cold emotional states versus hot emotional states mm. and that social psychologists have done these studies that when you're in a hot emotional state you're incredibly uh, you're very afraid you're sexually aroused you're you know mm -hmm. like some kind mm -hmm. of heightened emotional state you cannot from a cold emotion a regular emotional state 
reliably predict how you will act. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is if somebody is in some kind of heightened state and they act a certain way, all of us who observe it go, I would never do that. Right. I would never do that. Well, I have not had a young man pounding on the door of my house mm -hmm. out of his mind and break in. Like, I don't know the terror of that. My whole thing around maybe we should not have guns so readily available mm -hmm. is the fact that, I, Sharon, I cannot tell you I wouldn't, if I had a gun, I would not shoot them. Yeah. I might. Yeah. I actually think I might. Yeah. So my whole thing around maybe we shouldn't have them isn't because I think I'm a better person than the people who shoot people who break into their homes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's that I'm fairly certain I'm not a better person. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we don't know. I mean, we, we really, you know, going from all kinds of different levels, you know, people who say, I would never have chemotherapy. And you think, well, you don't know that, actually. You right. know, or I would never right. do this, or I would never do that. And um, yes. It's hard to be alive. It's hard to be a human. And <laughs> we do the best we can sometimes. Oh, my but gosh. That's ex that is so true. And I think, like, having a – being able to sit in a place of compassion for, like, oh, man, it's just hard. Yeah, it's very hard. And it's not – I mean, I – have worked, you know, some amount with people um, who've lost children through gun violence and mm -hmm. uh, in school shootings and other mass shootings and with police and things like that. And, um, you know, what I really came to is that I felt like for some people, you know, like the parent, their job is to survive. And yeah. maybe it's someone else's job, um, the pastor, you know, um, to see where compassion can come into the situation, certainly for a while, you know? Oh, for sure. You know? Oh, my gosh. No kidding. I mean, I, <clears throat> I think I would often say to my, my congregation, like, that faith is a team sport. Yeah. Like, it's not an individual yeah. competition. And, like, Sometimes I'm like in this solid place and like if you don't have faith or you can't pray, I, I can cover you. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, but I want you to know that next week we will probably have to switch places. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, you know, if I've had somebody who was so angry at a mutual friend and they're like, I just I can't. And I'm like, you know what? I can totally love that person yeah. just on yeah. your behalf for a while yeah. until you're ready, you know? That's so great. So I know you recently, I just have to ask you this. I know you recently started meditation and here's a quote from you. I was so desperate in 2020 that I did what I thought I would never do. I started meditating. Yeah. So was this your pandemic desperation activity? I mean, yeah, given, I mean, look at what you look at what we've been talking about, the, the suffering you, of others that you become intimate with and your willingness to bear the faith and express the grace that they can't even imagine exists anymore in this world. And, you know, was the pandemic so bad it drove you to meditation? Yeah, it's humiliating. I mean, I just have always, here's the humiliating thing about getting older. 
I'm 52 now is like um, all the shit I said in my 30, 20s, 30s and 40s about, quote, who I was. <laughs> like, I'm the kind of person who like fill in the blank. So little of it is true now. So and when you write memoir, you're just stuck, you know, so mm-hmm. I I now rely upon and really cherish things that I was known for making fun of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's humbling. So, um, yeah, the the meditation thing. I'm I'm very on and off with it. I I really only do it when I'm desperate. I, I wish I could say I was just like. <laughs> well, you I just mean, walk I, the, you know. Yes, I mean, I live a very contemplative life. Yeah, uh, deeply contemplative life as a theologian, uh, but. Uh, the practice of like sitting and doing meditation, that is like, um, it's definitely a triage kind of situation for me. Obviously, from my point of view, you know, it's an interesting choice rather than making sourdough bread or whatever people did you know, like, in the beginning. No, I, I watch, I know, like, I'm like, look, if you, if you use that time to learn how to bake bread or speak Italian or some other form of physical or like improvement or something like good for you, I watch TV Mm -hmm. and put on 15 pounds. And then occasionally when I was desperate, I meditated. That was really, that is, this is why I should never be seen as an example (laughs) of anything except for what it looks like to be desperately in need of grace every day of my life. (laughs) Wow. But since you've had a contemplative practice for so long, I'm so interested now, you know, to hear how meditation was different than prayer. To me, I, I found spaces of compassion in meditation that I did not access as deeply in prayer. Mm-hmm. I feel like there was a, uh, there, uh, it, it's more likely for my ego to go offline a little more, just mm-hmm. one inch more uh, with meditation than with prayer. And I, I have, I have cried when I was meditating mm-hmm. before. Like suddenly it breaks something. I mean, um, my ego wants to just hold on to so many things. And um when I feel one slipping something slipping away slightly, it it can rupture something in me that needs to be ruptured, you know. So mm-hmm. that 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 has definitely happened. I I definitely felt there were feelings in there are feelings in meditation for me of it i don't know a way to say it other than the cheesy like my consciousness expanding Mm -hmm. and i felt that walking the camino every day because you're walking six to eight hours and i did it as alone as i possibly could and in these beautiful open vistas and i felt my spirit and my consciousness unfurl into those vistas in a way that felt familiar because I'd experienced it a little bit in meditation. And I would be blissed out, man. I would take these 
little videos to show Eric of like what I was seeing, like 360 degree view of these just gorgeous, gorgeous settings I was in. And I listened to them. Like I've been clean and sober for 29 years, but I I watch these 30 second videos. I sound stoned out of my (laughs) mind. I'm like, oh my God, it's so beautiful. I'm so grateful. I can't believe I get to do this. Oh my God. You know, (laughs) but it was familiar because I had experienced a touch of it in meditation. That's beautiful. So you were interviewed recently by Dax Shepard for the Armchair Expert podcast, and you brought up an interesting point about the ability to distinguish between fact and truth. Yeah. And I'm wondering what you mean by that. Well, I I think the Enlightenment affected us in ways that we don't we aren't totally aware of. Mm-hmm. And so when when basically humanity came to this place where we're like we have elevated human reason. We are no longer just based – we aren't just superstitious beings who mm-hmm. believe things that are unprovable. We have the scientific method now. So um, there's a way to to have things that are verifiable fact, and that's what we know is true or not true. Mm-hmm. But there are things, as you know, anybody who has a spiritual practice of some kind, we know that there are things that are true that you can't – prove in a lab mm-hmm. you know but you know it in your right. body um and and or things you experience that are not replicatable you know mm-hmm. or explainable in a rational way and so my example is when people are like do you think jesus was actually born of a virgin do you think it's a fact that mary was like a medical version i'm like what well, is it a fact that's mm-hmm. unknowable is it true yeah, I think it's true. There's something mm-hmm. true about the story. Mm-hmm. And and this is why myth, myths and sacred stories are so important for us to understand certain aspects of what it means to be human um, in a way that science isn't going to tell us. And having said that, I don't see them as being opposed to each other. Mm-hmm. I think they are two aspects of the the glory of this creation that we get to live in and the glory of being human beings. Some things we can understand scientifically, some things we can only understand spiritually or experientially. And they're all, they all should be considered valid and not a threat to each other. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. And now, uh, finally, let's talk about your most recent project, the chapel which looks like a new imagining of community and how did this come about? And what about community in our time and <laughs> our crazy time? Yeah. Um, the, the impetus for starting the chapel was really, it is an experiment and it's just a pop-up thing. We're just doing it for one year, but it, but it is because I wanted to have a space where people could have really, beautiful, open, charitable conversations about spirituality and theology and religion. And there's not a lot of space online for that. And so I wanted it to be a place that was not ruled by ads or algorithms, which I think might be destroying humanity. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's subscription-based, but also offered uh, to anybody for free who, who wants 
who who wants it. So everything we send out about it lets people know, just email us and you can be part of this for free. But I wanted to pay everybody who contributes to it. So it, there is a subscription fee. And it's made me realize I think it is a small percentage of people who ruin the internet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. Like most people aren't horrible. And so um, I, what I realized is that if human beings have some kind of guidelines for how to be with each other, some kind of covenant for how to be with each other, um, things tend to go a lot better. Now you can't end up thinking the covenant and the rules and the guidelines are more important than people. That's mm-hmm, what mm-hmm. that's where we get tripped up often with religion. But uh, so we have the commandments uh, in the chapel. And the first commandment is thou shalt not be an asshole. And then um, another commandment is like assign positive intent to what other people write. And um you know, don't don't use don't mm-hmm. comment on someone's post just to prove that you're better than them or have a better understanding of something. You know, mm-hmm. like or no trauma dumping. Like there are just some guidelines, you know. And and there there's been one person that we've had to ask to leave. That's mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And at the end, it's like if we find that you're unable to abide by these commandments, you will be escorted out and offered a blessing and a refund. Mm. So, <laughs> uh, but only one person. So I think that's one of the things that makes the internet awful is there's no covenant with how to be with each other. Beautiful. So may it, may it sustain many, many beings in our time of trying to find one another, you know, and yeah. not, not be yeah. so alone. It's been yeah. just so wonderful to talk to you. I wish it could go on, uh, for a lot longer, but it can't for this time. So maybe another time it would be just lovely just to keep talking and get to know one another and someday to be together. I would love that. This has just been dreamy. I'm so glad it happened. Thank you. And thank Catherine. And uh, thank you all for joining us today to learn more about Nadia's work. You can visit www.nadiabolzweber.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and may you live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, check out her website at SharonSalzberg.com.